Shalom Aleichem from the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. I'm Emma Morgenstern. Today I'm here with Seth Rogovoy, a regular contributor to Pock and Trigger and the curator of the Yiddish Book Center's upcoming music festival, Yidstock. Seth is a music critic and the author of The Essential Klezmer. Welcome, Seth. Thanks, Emma. Um, so today we're going to be talking a little bit about your piece in Pock and Trigger, uh, about the Fugs. We can start off with a clip from that that song called Nothing. So can you start with some background about the Fugs? Who are they? What genre are they part of? Right, right. Well, the Fugs were a really fascinating uh, idiosyncratic group, so it's hard to class. They're almost, they almost defy classification, although not entirely. They were really both a very influential and part of, of a movement. Um, if you have to give them a label, uh, I prefer to say they're uh, neo-beat folk rock. And and that's because I, I see them in a large way coming out of the beat movement. Uh, they were formed basically by two beat poets or neo-beat poets, Thule Kupferberg and Ed Sanders. Um, you know, and these guys are contemporaries of Alan and friends of Allen Ginsberg's and people like that. And they're coming from that same scene. Um, I mean, the, the beat scene was was bigger in the late 40s and the 1950s, and the Fugs were thinking, we're, we're talking about the mid-1960s. So um, that's why you put the term neo in front of the beat. Mm-hmm. Um, they were sort of neo-beat or pre-hippie, or maybe even uh, very influential on the, the hippie movement, too, I mean, if you have to label them. But, uh, you know, other terms get thrown around with the Fugs, too, like, uh, well, folk and folk rock and protest rock and garage rock. Yeah, garage rock is such a funny term. I'd never really heard that before we started researching for this piece. Um, and then I was looking into it, and it, um, one definition I saw said that everyone who was part of that movement was in their teens or 20s. And uh, the Fugs don't really fall into that category. They're in their 40s by the time they formed. So how how well, does that make sense? That's really interesting. <laughs> um, I mean, part of that is probably to their credit because they were so youthful in spirit. Um, and you listen to their songs, and they're just so kind of wacky, and in a way, and I mean this in the best possible sense, immature. Um, I, you know, they just they you, you can't get beyond two lines without them saying a naughty singing a naughty word or something like some <laughs> yeah, teenager. Like, like the title "Boobs" a lot. I right. thought that was funny. <laughs> the title and and the whole lyrics of that song, um, as in with many of their songs, are just about sex and and but from a real kind of adolescent boy's point of view. But there's actually something very political going on there because uh, you got to remember the time. I mean, this is 1965. This is when the Beatles are you know, are huge and hitting big with songs that, um, at least on the surface, although I, uh, at least on the surface are very innocent and all about puppy love and kissing and, and, uh, and the fugs are almost the inverse of that. And I just want to qualify that and give the Beatles a little bit of credit because mm-hmm. actually, if you listen really closely, it, you have to dig really deep, but, um, the Beatles do have some other stuff going on in some of their s- supposedly innocent songs that isn't so innocent, but it's really below the surface the fugs just basically totally upend it um and as far as the the actual musical 
uh, aspect of the garage rock sound. Some of the Fug stuff now. Tuli and Ed were not really musicians; they were poets, and and they they sang and and using that term, sing loosely. Mm-hmm. Uh, as anybody who listens to as as will uh, hear some of their tunes can say. But they did work with real musicians. So, for example, uh, on the Fugs first album, which is called the Fugs first album, which right right there is that's a very garage rocky thing to do, right. to call your first album your first album. Um, this song slum goddess uh musically is very much it's it's as garage rock as probably when people who are familiar with the term garage rock think of the genre um a song by the trogs called wild thing um do you know that one does that ring a bell at all um, i mean if it's the wild thing i'm thinking of then yes i know then it yes, but. <laughs> okay but that's kind of a garage garage rock tune and and what the fugs do on that tune and as on many of their songs it's you know it, the this the term signifies that after the Beatles came and showed, you know, that you make rock and roll with a couple of guitars, a bass and a drum, anybody who could put that stuff in a garage and plug in and play that music can play garage rock. I mean, when I grew up in the uh, very young in the 1960s, there there were, you know, older people on my suburban street and they played rock and roll in their garage, mm-hmm. literally down the block from me. That was garage rock. Um, so uh, that aesthetic, that kind of DIY, what we nowadays call DIY, I don't mm-hmm. think the term was around then, do-it-yourself <laughs> DIY, um, and later became known as punk rock, um, they, they were very much like that in the sense that although they did play with skilled musicians, th- it was a very kind of seat-of-your-pants, throw-it-together musical um, attitude and aesthetics. So in that sense, it really was garage rock or proto-punk, let's say. Mm-hmm. And were they popular? No, not not in the not in the usual sense of the term popular. I mean, I think one of their tunes actually cracked the Billboard 100, you know, Hot 100 singles. Maybe got as high as number 89 for like a day or something. But no, they they were never popular in any sense. I mean, they did, you know, in certain uh, in certain scenes in certain crowds in New York City where they were based, um, you know, in certain venues. Um, they did have a following, certainly, among certain people. And they were very influential. Um, you know, there's this old uh, uh, saying somebody once said about a group called the Velvet Underground. Um, another group that, you know, was hugely influential but never really that popular. And formed about the same time as the Fugs, and, and there's a relationship there, I think very much so, the Velvet Underground being formed by a poet, mm-hmm. uh, a guy named Lou Reed, who was a poetry student, right. I believe at Syracuse University. There's this uh, thing about the Velvet Underground that, you know, they only, only a thousand people either saw them or bought their records, but every single one of those people went on to form a band. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Fugs may have never had mass popularity, but the people who followed them were, were you know, probably important people, thoughtful people, went on to were artists, were culturally influential. And you listen to the Fugs stuff from 1965, and you think, wow, they were actually, like I say, it was proto-punk. It very much anticipated punk from 15 years later, uh, yet to happen. It also, um, you know, it was really uh, channeling all kinds of cultural influences themselves and then, you know, churning them out and uh, sending them out there so that I think even the Fugs in 1965, and I'm 
it's very rare that I will say something like this, having written a book on Bob Dylan, but I listened to the Fugs in the first album, 965, and then I say, oh, well, Bob Dylan was listening to the Fugs when he went when he was in Woodstock and went to the basement with the ba- with then the Hawks, who became the band, and they sat around mm-hmm. and recorded the songs that became the basement tapes, part of their inspiration for doing that clearly came from listening to the Fugs because, yeah. because there's a real kind of casual silliness, yet something really, uh, you know, profound going on uh, underneath the adolescent humor, which Dylan and the band were doing in the basement, too. Mm-hmm. So from the garage to the basement. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> deeper and deeper. Um, so let's get into the Jewishness of this whole operation. Um, so I was looking at the Fugs website and I saw that it said, um, I rented a former kosher meat store on East 10th Street in late 1964 with groovy tile walls and chicken singeing equipment, which I transformed into a vegetarian literary zone called the Peace Eye Bookstore. I left the word strictly kosher on the front window. So from that, I, I mean, I really can see that they're drawing from Jewish sources and they sort of, that's where they've they've identified their roots. Um, so what's Jewish about what they've produced, what they've created? Well, you know, it, I, in some sense, the question you're asking is that, I hate the word fundamental, but but that fundamental question that we're constantly asking ourselves and debating, um, and, and that is, you know, what is Jewish music or, or what is, uh, for that matter, Jewish, uh, any uh, cultural form, you know, what makes it Jewish? Is it just because the artist is Jewish? Does there have to be some kind of Jewish intention? What is a Jewish intention? Is it Jewish culturally? In the few minutes we have now, we'll dispense with all that. And, and I'll try to just deal directly with that without going into all the philosophical, uh, really interesting um, inquiry into in, into that and to say that you know i think yeah they were in some ways quintessentially jewish and in these ways i mean they were certainly as you can tell from that quote very identified themselves it meant a lot to them it certainly wasn't something they hid it was something they wore proudly and you know they drew from the jewish cultural and religious tradition whatever it is they drew, and so that on their very first album, they have a song called The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments The Kill. Thou shalt not cover thy neighbors, and thou shalt not kill. And thou shalt not cover thy neighbors. The same Ten Commandments that you and I read in in the Bible, and they do it, that song "Slum Goddess." It's "Slum Goddess" from the Lower East Side. <laughs> what they're doing there, uh, if I love that song because, you know, I think what they're doing is that you gotta. At the time, the Beach Boys were huge, and the Beach Boys represented probably everything that's opposite of Jewish. The Beach Boys were the beach. They were California, you know, the other coast. They were blonde. They were surfing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so then the Fugs answer that with Slum Goddess from the Lower East Side, and the music is even kind of Beach Boys-like garage rock surf music. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, you know, they're acknowledging that, but they're saying, well, there's this whole other side to the same coin, basically. in their their intellectual approach that that questions authority clearly I mean they're totally irreverent so um, you know I don't want to claim irreverence necessarily as only a Jewish characteristic but there is an irreverent strain in certain Jewish artistic cultural thought uh, critical of or questioning of the establishment very much in the Yiddishist tradition mm-hmm. and they come out of that as well as being very immersed in real Jewish textual things so you get the Ten Commandments so you get Yiddish words so you get this explication of the song Bulbous which they turn into nothing. Right so uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that song in particular that's what you wrote your Pock and Trigger piece about um, so you want to just give us a little splash of that song? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's this great old uh, kind of, I don't know, if it's not really sarcastic, but it's uh, its just, you know, I don't think we have an English word to describe the, the point of view of this great Yiddish song, Bulbous, which is potatoes, uh, where it basically the, the the lyrics in English go Monday potatoes, Tuesday potatoes, Wednesday potatoes, Thursday potatoes, Friday p- potatoes, and then it's what is it? Shabbos uh, potato kugel. Potato kugel. All right. So the point is, you know, you're getting served up the same thing, and then you know you wait so that it's just such a Yiddish thing. You know, these guys, the Fugs, they take that song, which is such a quintessential. Um, familiar song, quintessential in its attitude, and they transmogrify it for their time. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting thing happens. I saw on the internet somebody mistakenly um, said that they took that song from, from the Yiddish song called Bubkiss. And I know why <laughs> they made that mistake, because, you know, now Bubkiss, of course, literally is beans, but Bubkiss is nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's sort of what bulbous is. Uh, you know, it's it's definitely a mistake. So Wikipedia should fix that mistake. Mm-hmm. But um, but but it's the attitude more that counts. And um, and then they they turn it into really a political protest song by uh, naming names of people and and say so. If I remember correctly, it's you know Lyndon Johnson, nothing. Avril Harriman, nothing. Richard Nixon, nothing. Kropotkin, nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Um, so, you know, to put a label on that, it's really a nihilistic anthem. It's about nothingness. And, you know, and this is a, a time where that was a real critique of American culture. That was the critique of the, you know, the hardcore left nihilist. Students for Democratic Society, or even even probably further to the left, because because as I say, it's really nihilistic. It doesn't even have an ideology, which really is so. That's coming out of a real neo beat or or beat cultural kind of attitude, anti-war, 
uh, just disgusted with the way the culture is going in the 1960s. So, you know, it's a, it's a great way of, take, of, of basing a powerful statement on something equally as powerful. I mean, it's pretty striking to me how deliberate the lyrics are compared to their sound. I mean, the sound, when you listen to them, it sounds like a garage band. I mean, it sounds so sort of thrown together, but the lyrics smash that that initial um, read of the music. So it's I, I'm pretty amazed by that when I've listened to some of their stuff. Right, right. And that that's why I use the term... Uh proto-punk or, or for them because it anticipates what punk rock was all about, which was in the, in the mid to late 1970s, which was a reaction to kind of bloated, excessive, highly produced, highly thought out, cerebral, uh, pompous rock music and rock orchestrations, you know, some of which I love. Um, but, you know, punk was, was kind of stripping it all away. So... I think very much the fact that the Fugs are doing it seat of the pants in, in that thing that, that, that you describe is that's part of the statement mm-hmm. um, to do it any other way. You know, well, it would be different. It may work. But 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 I think it gains strength because because they're uh, they're actually and I think you make this point. They're actually sounding worse than they really are. Right, right. <laughs> Definitely. Which is part of the brilliance the, the of the aesthetic. I mean, it, you know, they're they're not stupid aesthetically. They're really smart. They know what they're doing. Right, right. We know that the the lyrics, the source material is, you know, has some rootedness in in Jewish culture. Um, but does their music actually sound Jewish to you at all? Because to me it doesn't. Right. Well, you know, again, that goes back to the question, what is Jewish music? And certainly there are some kinds of music that clearly sound Jewish to us because they are rooted melodically or harmonically, uh, musically, from a technical point of view, in cantorial music or synagogue music or Hasidic nigunim, um, you know, or... or, uh, or perhaps Sephardic music, uh, Middle Eastern music, some of that sounds Jewish because it's what we associate uh, Jewish music. But, you know, there's all kinds of Jewish music uh, um, all over the world, so, so it can sound very different. I mean, they throw our violin in there sometimes, and, you know, it's it's a little cheap and easy to say that, oh, violin Jewish, because it's not necessarily the case by any means. But I think they, when they do that, I do hear them doing that because they want to, to, to evoke that old world feeling because it's something that means a lot to them. And it has a resonance that fits to to their music, to mm-hmm. what they're trying to say, what they're trying to communicate. So in that sense, yeah, I think it's Jewish, just like, yeah, I think— that I hear, even though there's nothing overtly uh, nominally or conventionally Jewish about, say, Lou Reed's Velvet Underground, Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, a lot of Leonard Cohen's songs, which, like the Fugs, are maybe uh, content-wise clearly Jewish, but perhaps musically people don't evoke Jewish music, but in some way it does. It, Mm -hmm. it, It has to. I circle back around to that. And uh, so there are elements of it. I think they make it Jewish. It's coming from them. But, you know, yeah, it's not klezmer by any means. No, it's not. (laughs) Certainly not klezmer. Thank you very much, Seth. Thanks for having me here. 
You've been listening to a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For additional interviews and conversations, please visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org audio. I'm Emma Morgenstern. Zaymir stark und gesund. Be strong, be well, and tune in again soon. Freitag vor der Novena, gar nicht, Kegel, Alter, wer weiß.